Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a determined lowlife. And I'm Caroline Sita, and my wrath is as fearsome as my countenance is splendid. That is so true, Caroline. Thank you, Ned. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. Except we are switching it up. Rules are made to be broken, baby. Because today, we are sort of like half-breaking our movie role with a miniseries. I don't know. What do you think, Caroline? Miniseries, TV or movie? At the Emmys, they do have miniseries or TV movie as a category lumped in together. So it's kind of like a very long TV movie? Sure. Okay, well, we're bending the rules, and hint, hint, next week we're going to break them entirely. But we're doing it this week with Mike Nichols' 2003 HBO adaptation of Angels in America, with a script by Tony Kushner, adapting his own two-part stage play, and a stacked ensemble cast, including our current featured actor, the one, the only, Jeffrey Wright. And joining us today for that discussion is none other than actor, writer, and one of our leading public intellectuals, Will Wilhelm. Welcome, Will. Hi. Thank you so much. What high praise. Um, I'm happy to be here and spend time with some fellow Wildcats. Yes, that's right. Go Cats. It's another one of our classmates from the days of yore when we romped the overly endowed greens of Northwestern <laughs> University. Very that. But also now just like a, an artist currently based in Chicago, Will is a stunning performer who I most recently saw in Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Closed now, just Will? Just We're still running. No, we just closed. Just closed. Well, happy closing. Thank you. It was amazing. Thank you so much. And devastating. Will sang their face off uh, in the third act. I did do that. Really amazing. So good to all be here to unpack a tremendous amount of movie miniseries content we've got six hours of angels in america we got a lot to dig into so just thinking back over the six hours which i'm assuming you both watched in the past few weeks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as i did finished last night at midnight (laughs) great yeah i came i came screaming into the gate this morning with the final episode what sticks out to you from the series when you think back over what you just saw What's like jumping out? Ned, can I acknowledge one thing that actually did happen just as we were logging into our record, Mm -hmm. which is that you and I, and maybe you do this with a lot of your friends, but you and I not infrequently refer to each other as either bud or buddy. And I truly (laughs) could not stop laughing because that's what, that's what uh, Joe calls Harper or they call each other. And I was like, yeah, I guess Ned and I, our dynamic is like a sexless Mormon marriage is how I would describe (laughs) our friendship. I do. I do have some some uh, some Joe Pitt characteristics about me. I think <laughs> so. That was a, an immediate um, thing that stood out to me was that turn yeah. of phrase. And also, I have to say that I think casting Patrick Wilson as a repressed Mormon is maybe the most genius piece of casting that's ever happened in the history of filmmaking. Because I would just describe Patrick Wilson's energy as repressed Mormon energy, and it was a real. 
a real smart insight to cast him in that role. He does really sell the hell out of that out of that role. Will, what what what's won't leave your mind from Angels in America? Well, I watched most of it after um, celebrating a little too much the <laughs> joint events of my closing and my partner's birthday celebration mm-hmm. happening concurrently. So I watched the entire thing straight through while all I could eat what? was crackers. Well done. Oh my gosh. What a day you had. So just to make sure, can I, can I unpack? Yes. Did you just sort of imply you did a hangover marathon watch? Yes. That's exactly Great. what I have implied. Um, wow. <laughs> what I would not like the guests to know, but what I'm going to share anyway, because it's just true, is that it was only interrupted by me like having to go to the bathroom and throw up the next day. Aww. So it really, and I also, this is not a characteristic of mine. Perhaps mm-hmm. it was at Northwestern, but this was um. It was a violent occurrence that has not happened in a long time. So this was um, really, I was in a very specific Mm -hmm. uh, place. And so I will use that as the context to share the quote that will not get out of my head. Please. Is Meryl Streep saying to a sort of like a homeless person, Emma Thompson, look, I'm sorry you're psychotic, but just you need to pull it together. And I was like, that is me to me right now. Me to oh me. God, that's incredible. What an intense sort of visceral bodily experience you had for this very, I'd say, visceral bodily intense piece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, very much so. And also, I think for, you know, queer people in general, a visceral, like, artistic moment that, you know, for me, I was revisiting, but it was, mm-hmm. in- I-, I would say maybe the first time I watched it was around when we were all meeting each other sometime during college or immediately before or after, and I have just so much more, like, context and life mm-hmm. experience to be revisiting it. So it was it was a lot happening for me no matter what the context I watched, watched it in would have been. But wow, I really threw some circumstance in there. So when you say you first watched it back, let's say like 2010s-ish yeah. time, did you encounter it first as a play or first as a uh, miniseries? Oh, that's a good question. I, I've i never seen it performed on stage, which um, okay. is sad for me. But I don't know... I read it and watched the miniseries around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know which one came first. I'm going to hold up only for, for the people on the Zoom call holding up my copy of the script that is branded yes. as the miniseries cover. So there might have been is. a sort of a push around around the miniseries right. and the, the script. I know that I was assigned that text in college mm-hmm. at, in some class. I can't remember which. And I knew that I was aware of it already. So I'm going to say both of those events came quickly together. So, But I've never experienced it live, which I would mm-hmm. very much like to do. Because you see, like, watching the movie, it's so clear how much of a play it is. Like, this series of, like, all of the two-person scenes and, like, the way that drama and tension is built. It's almost funny to me, like, when they have extras, you know, just other people populating the world. Like, there's this one moment in part in the, like, fifth or sixth episode where... Jeffrey Wright is, like, having this long conversation with Roy about, like, describing his version of heaven. And there's some nurse that was just, like, there, standing, there, like, <laughs> off to the side. Like, you see her at the beginning of the scene when he hobbles on. And then there's, like, a yeah. very long, very intense monologue and scene for minutes and minutes. And then Roy, like, hobbles back to the room and just passes that nurse again. was just standing there listening the whole time. <laughs> 
Yeah, a few a few of those translation or adaptation choices feel a little strange when they have to make it a real world context. Because I I do get the impression that most of the time when you are going to see this play performed, it's going to be highly theatrical. It's not going to be like let's wheel on a completely realistic like hospital set with beeping yeah. like, monitors and things. It's going to be pretty paired. In in fact, I feel like I saw something. Let me jump to the Wikipedia real fast. It was Tony Kushner, the author, saying, uh, the play benefits from a pared-down style of presentation with scenery kept to an evocative and informative minimum, mm. et cetera, et cetera, which I imagine, I mean, hey, there's been probably loads of productions of this throughout the world, but most of them are going to honor that sort of thing. So it is an interesting project to take it and then make it in the film medium, which is so sort of like automatically married to realism, at least in terms of design and staging, to say like, well, if... You, this scene is outside, so they're in Washington Square Park, so we got 100 extras around. Right. But it does still have, I mean, I feel like the most notable element of theatricality that remains here, and this was a decision that reportedly sold Tony Kushner on having Mike Nichols direct it, was the choice to maintain some of the doubling of roles, which there is even more of in the stage. I think some things that you don't get in the movie are the character of Roy Cohn's doctor, the uh, Martin Heller, the sort of like Republican operative, and the ghosts of Prior Walter's relatives, those are all new characters. But in the stage play, those and pretty much every speaking role is played by one of the, what is it, like eight yeah, main seven characters? Yeah, seven or eight, I think. Seven or eight yeah, actors, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that thing remains, and that is something that you really do not see too often in film. Mm-hmm. And I find it really satisfying to get, you know, Meryl Streep as the rabbi. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Emma Thompson and all of those other, I mean, all of them. And I mean, we'll get into all of this. And I kind of think like, you know, Jeffrey Wright as the travel agent is kind of like, not that I don't like his beliefs, but there's just so much contextually around that, that like, Mm -hmm. it's the beginning of a history that I think we'll get into. But I love seeing Jeffrey Wright as the travel agent. And that's actually Mm -hmm. how he appears first in the movie. And I like, you know, I just feel less complicated about that. So it makes me like it more but mm-hmm. i i'm obsessed with the doubling i'm not a a film person i like famously have seen no important movies i cannot remember <laughs> no. the name of any film actor like you texted me For about sure. this and we're like we're doing a series on jeffrey wright i was like jeffrey wright and then i was like oh my god yes jeffrey wright who i've seen in a million things but i just don't know anyone's name right i think there is a lot of magic and expressiveness in the filmmaking itself, like that theater magic. I know there's like a, yes, a fully realized world because it wouldn't really make sense to watch a movie like that's set in a black box and like an empty space. But I think there is a lot of theater magic that does find its way into the way the film is made, which, and I think watching it, the experience of watching it, you, you see how different it is from a lot of other movies. And I think that is both, an element of adapting a play to a movie, but I think that's also an element of queer storytelling. The expressiveness and the magic is mm-hmm. inherently a, a queerness to me. I think like queerness and realism are kind of opposites. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so I think that there is a lot, there's a lot of things that I think are planted in this. It, it was a big pivotal moment in a lot of things, but especially queer storytelling and the amount of space we can take up, but also in like, you know, artistic elements and choices. And so I think there's a lot that's really successful 
And it's also interesting that it's like Tony Kushner is a queer person, you know, sort of at the helm of this story. But it's the rest of the people are being populated by by, you know, famous straight people in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there's like a lot of elements that have since run like run their course and become fully fleshed out in the hands of more queer people. You know what I mean? This is a Mm -hmm. slight sidebar. But have y'all seen um, on HBO Max Veneno? No. No, I've never even heard of it. Oh my god. Okay, because it's not Hollywood. Ooh. It's 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 in Spain. It's it's a it's a Spanish okay. television series, like limited series. I don't want to tell you too much about it, but I want to implore you both to watch it. It was one of the okay. first things that when HBO Max first came out, it was like one of their first things, so I feel like a lot of people missed it. All I will say it is about the life of a real person of of a trans woman who rose to fame in Madrid in like the early 90s and the way that there is magicalness and uncertainty and like there there's there's no answers there's only questions it is like one of my favorite things if not my favorite thing I've ever seen on television and going Whoa. back to rewatching Angels in America I sort of see seeds that were planted in the way mm. this story was told that were really allowed to blossom when they were kind of like removed from the Hollywood weird commercial Ryan Murphy bullshit and also <laughs> just like created by a lot more queer people so mm-hmm. that's my pitch can you spell that title of that for me? Veneno, V-E-N-E-N-O. Excellent. Maybe we can just back up for a second just to talk a little more about the overall history of Angels in America because I think you're so right, Will, that that this is probably one of the most influential pieces of art in like living memory, honestly. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, we keep saying a Tony Kushner play premiered in the early 90s. I think it's a two-part play. Each of them are usually about, I think, three hours or so when they're performed. So this is definitely mm-hmm. like an experience. And the first one comes out or is first performed in 1991. Perestroika, the second part, is performed in 1992. And so for people that don't really know the play or the story, it's it's sort of a mix of like you're saying, well, this like sort of realistic look at these various New Yorkers largely centered around the AIDS crisis. And then also this like magical realism element that involves literal angels coming down and anointing one of the characters a prophet and ghosts and ancestors are sort of are sort of coming into this story and i think a lot of what's happening is tony kushner just trying to process sort of the enormity of what was happening with the aids crisis and and sort of saying like you can't just explore this in realist terms because it's almost like not a realistic crisis that's happening you almost have to make it this larger than life experience to sort of reflect what people who lived through that period of time were going through the sense of like an armageddon approaching completely yeah Yeah. like the thing that the angel keeps echoing and that everyone keeps being really focused on is that this is sort of the end of the millennium and potentially you know the end of the world like that is a question that i think characters are frequently raising and then mm-hmm. the miniseries, so that so that play goes on at like I think it wins a bunch of Tonys, wins a Pulitzer Prize, becomes hugely influential. And then the miniseries is made in two thousand three, which I think is so interesting because it's the play is dealing so much with like Reagan era politics, and then obviously this miniseries comes out in like the Bush era, which was another yeah. very conservative, horrible era. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to me that that even though there was much more distance to the AIDS crisis when the miniseries came out, that that was a time when it felt like appropriate for that material to be revisited. And then obviously mm. we're, we're revisiting it <laughs> 
with the memory of the Trump era. There's just a cup. There's some lines in here that I kept having to check the play to be like, was this actually a line that they wrote in 1991 or did they add this? But there's some line about like, oh, yeah, the, you know, Roy Cohn's assistant is just like, oh, yeah, we're going to just stack the courts with all these Republican judges that are just like little bombs that can go off and we're just going to hide them around and then whenever we have a little conservative case we want to win, they're just there to like go off and we're going to slowly just Minefield. turn all of America into a conservative hellscape. And I was like, holy shit, he wrote this in 1991. Like you could not have a more forward looking understanding of what politics was going to be in the in the in the 2020s i mean yeah i did i did note down i was like okay it's very specific to its time contextually but also what do we have now we have republicans we have a climate crisis we have an emotionally choked off world it's all like we have a pandemic of a different kind that's right do you know donald trump is a as a roy Cohn mentee Mm-hmm. i did know that yeah the ghost of Roy Cohn still still haunting us. Ned, do you want to dig into like what your so we went through Will, like how Will first encountered the script and the play and everything. What was your experience of Angels in America as a whole? This was my first time watching the miniseries this week. I saw a production of Millennium Approaches that actually happened at Northwestern in 2009. I saw it on Dillo Day instead of going to see the Decemberists or something. So this is like we have a big spring music festival like get drunk palooza. And I opted to go see this uh, because it was the only time I could make the show. I opted to go see this three hour play in one of our black box theaters. I also saw that production. It was so good. It was so good. Yeah. I mean, it was I was a freshman. It was filled with all these juniors and seniors who I idolized like they were themselves some sort of demigod. It was directed by Jeff Button, who has been a, you know, a big theatrical mentor to me. I did not know that this happened. Yeah, I think you were. I think it was when we were freshmen. So you probably weren't there. Yet. No, I wasn't there, um, but I did not even hear about this happening. And I will confirm for the audience that to miss Dillo Day to see a play is like, that is a, that is a large form of commitment. Because yeah. this is a day that the entire year is leading up to, and it is your get-out-of-jail-free card to misbehave in the worst ways. Mm-hmm. And I did it again the following year, and I kind of regretted it. But yeah, I had no regrets about that one. I thought it was fucking rad if i had time to go see it again i would have seen it again it was a it was a struble show you know it was like Mm. uh the director jeff was a a second year grad student so it was like a smaller a smaller show but it was just in a black box theater fully Mm -hmm. abstract and then with the angel done with these like Like silks silks? like circus style silks that came down from the ceiling and it was all like so simple but so beautifully done yeah there was also this percussionist instead of like for score there was just this sort of drummer doing these sort of like almost like steel drum sounding i just remember like roy Cohn working his like switchboard and every time he would like switch the drum would go like the doom and it was just there was a lot of those kind of interesting Mm. interesting choices but extremely well acted very cool that was kind of my only encounter with it. I think I reread just Millennium Approaches then. I never read Perestroika. So yeah, I went in kind of kind of cold to this. I didn't know exactly where anything was going to go. And it's an interesting thing to just have 10 years only really familiar with the Millennium Approaches half. Because mm-hmm. you really don't know how it ends. No, I mean, well... <laughs> It works kind of as a whole. It works as this like snapshot. But now watching the whole thing, I'm like, oh, yeah, you need those beats to come to come full circle. I mean, essentially, it's a play about a sick man who like starts to think he's going to see something and then he does have a vision. And it's a play about a repressed man who then does leave his wife. And but like a lot of the characters really don't come into their own. They all have arcs that are meant to be fulfilled in the full six hour version. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And yeah, I found it very rewarding to get to see the second half. I kind of thought, oh, maybe because they're doing a production volume approaches, maybe that's the good half. And mm-hmm. then the second half is kind of not as good. But I love I love all of it. I, I had a very similar experience and similar thought process to you, Ned, in that I first saw mm-hmm. this play at the same production in Northwestern. I did then go read Perestroika. And I will just say, you know, plays are not meant to be read. Like there is, I just remember my 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 reaction to reading Perestroika was just really not connecting to it, especially because there's scenes where the stage direction is just like, and now Pryor wrestles, wrestles an angel. And then he mm-hmm. goes to heaven and there's, you know, a table of seven angels that are each representing a different continent. And reading this, you're just like, what the hell? Like they're so, it's so <laughs> difficult to connect to. But then watching it, it actually feels very natural and normal and it doesn't feel confusing. It feels of a piece with everything else. But I think that that just strikes me as... I don't know, a challenge of reading a play. I similarly hadn't seen this miniseries. I actually had, the reason I own this script is because we, in my acting class, we used the script not so much to put on full scenes, but we used it as source material for some of those Meisner exercises that we talked about in our James Dean series, Ned. And so I did, in an abstract, Mm -hmm. mostly improvised way, play Ethel Rosenberg in a couple, (laughs) like, sort of acting exercise slash scenes for my acting class. So that was my other experience. But I similarly, I just hadn't seen this miniseries until this week. And I was just hugely impressed. Like, it's just incredible. And I similarly thought Paris Royka was brilliant. And I'm so glad that I finally saw it staged as opposed to just reading it and not fully understanding everything I was reading. Well, quick sidebar, I now remember I also did a scene study with it with uh, Royer Bacchus and I were playing Joe and Harper Pitt, um, mm. our sweet Royer Bacchus, something I would, oh, I'd love to Oh, <laughs> I'd love her to again. see that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yes. it was a fun, it was fun pairing. I kind of want you to play Harper and her to play Joe, though. Just a yeah, thought. I, I, would be I into think that 10 too. years on, it would be fun to see that. I mean, as you say, well, it's like we're... We're 10 years on. Now we're the age that a lot of the characters in the movie are. That Things really are starting to come too. clicking into place. As has been observed, it's it's all these like two-person scenes. I mean, I think it's one of the things that makes it really work as a play. It's two and sometimes three-person scenes. But those moments of spectacle, I mean, I cannot say how fucking funny I thought the scene where the angel first appears and then all her clothes kind of like fly off mm-hmm. in fire. And mm-hmm. then all of Pryor's clothes fly off. And then he flies up and they have this sort of like angel sex. And then she says like, plasma orgasmata. And he goes, yeah, well, no doubt. <laughs> and the whole thing was just so, such a funny image to me. And there's a lot of great visuals to be mined out of this. And I, I do think, for all that we said, like there is some weirdness caused by bringing it into the realistic medium of film. Mm-hmm. And perhaps some things lost. But I do think the things they do visualize, partially, as you said, Will, it's like there is some creative fantasticalness in a very queer way to the filmmaking, and it does result in some really good, powerful images, all of which are just like flashing through my head. And it was done in like 2003. So like the special mm-hmm. effects are 2003 special effects. They're good for the era, but you know, mm-hmm. it's nothing like, you know, watching a current sci-fi movie. But even that I feel like is like rooting that in realism that like mm-hmm. somehow angel sex should look like something that I have <laughs> a real like connection with. No, it is it is expressive and like things explode and you're looking through the holes in the tops of buildings. and And I think... That sort of, I don't know, I don't like expressionistic theatricality. theatricality, I think that is a sort of way where we can 
conceptualize like bigger ideas that are outside of us mm-hmm. because prior's contending with like what does it mean that you know I'm experiencing you know what I'm perceiving to be like the slow death of my body but it's representing like so much more beyond and outside me and there's a way that the angels sort of like take it into a picture of the bigger world but the angel is nothing like what you expect an angel to be and I think nothing what Pryor expects the angel Mm -hmm. to be and also that it takes so long for the angel to come it's so funny like if only watching Millennium approaches I think the angel comes in in the last scene of that three hour play and it is called Angels in America so she's there a lot more in the in Perestroika I I really like this depiction of angels as something terrifying which I actually think is much more biblically accurate than Mm -hmm. our cultural understanding of like you know angelic and this beautiful woman like they cast Emma Thompson and they dress her up very beautifully she looks stunning and they give her these like amazing tangible wings I actually think the parts of this movie that that lean into the theatricality are the parts that have aged the best, like, visually. And mm. sometimes there there are a few moments of, like, 2000 era, 2003 era CGI mm-hmm. that I think stand out in a bad way. But the, like, this is clearly a woman on wires wearing fake wings, like, leaning into that, I think actually has made it age very well. But Same reason the Dr. Octopus arms look good. Sure. <laughs> but please, continue. Um, but I love how scary the angel is and the experience of meeting her is. And I think one thing that really struck me on this viewing or I guess this first, both first and second viewing, is that this play is just a lot about religion. Like, I think that it is remembered as a play about the AIDS crisis, which it definitely is. But you have this angel coming to visit uh, prior. You have major characters that are Mormons. You have major characters that are Jewish. You have characters that, like, aren't religious at all. And it's so much in conversation about, I don't know, just the way that religion works in our modern world what's that there's like um lewis has that line that's like any religion that's not two thousand years old is a cult or something yes <laughs> yes which is so funny like i don't know and it, he goes the next line he goes and even then it's questionable yeah. or something like that <laughs> yeah 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 like this is just a play i don't know how to say this without sounding like a pretentious fuckhead but like this is a play that's just like poetry and so i it's like almost difficult to talk about because it's not like oh here's the narrative that i want to you know connect to it's just like here's the emotional reaction I had to this poetic language and deep themes that were presented across this larger-than-life abstracted story. I mean, when it's this long, it's able to take on so many themes that... And and I'm not saying that anything that gives itself six hours will successfully be able to tackle this many themes because the way that it sews them all together is so impressive. But there were so many parts in this where I was like, oh, this is just a... This is really about modern conservatism. Mm -hmm. There was just so much of a look at the sort of cynical, apocalyptic moral rot that leads to... American Republican conservatism. Maybe that's really just like the sort of chip on my shoulder right now. But then it's like, it's also about visions and it's also about health and about, uh, there's a little note I wrote, you know, AIDS, Mormons, visions, health, Republican Jews, New York City. Oh my. There's like so many different things that it takes on that you can dig into. Well, it's about America more than anything else, I think, and everything that embodies for better and often for worse. And I think New York City is a perfect microcosm of America because that's a a place, a space where you're able to more easily 
explore the interconnectedness of all of us, all of us who are very different from each other, across age, across religion, across wealth, across health, all of these mm-hmm. things. And it is something that many plays and movies have and books have tried to explore again, like weaving a web of all of these seemingly unconnected people. And like the way that Tony Kushner does it is not always like subtle. Like characters will follow someone that they mm-hmm. know surreptitiously through the streets of New York and be like, oh, this is how I meet your mother. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's not a better way to be like, how would these two interact? But what happens is you watch all of these two-person scenes of of, of people coming from absolutely moral opposition often to each other's existence let alone experience and you watch them not always but sometimes like find a middle ground and start to come up against each other's humanity in uncomfortable ways often in ways where sometimes like i don't even really want to think about roy Cohn's humanity but Mm -hmm. jeffrey wright it's like you know, having to grapple with all of that in his position as a nurse. So I think that is so successfully done. And it's a theme that we try to do again, because people really want to know, like, what what is the oneness of humanity? I feel like that's something we explore a lot. Um, And I think what Tony Kushner does is give us six hours of really nuanced exploration into that idea. Mm -hmm. I I totally agree that the relationship between... Jeffrey Wright's nurse bullies and Al Pacino's real life, uh, you know, the only historical figure in the main cast, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most like, just well, like- Well, uh, Ethel Rosenberg, but oh, in, right. in relationship yes, right. to him. That's right, yes. So a historical figure, a lawyer, a major Republican figure, the prosecutor in the Rosenberg case who got them executed, just one of the great insidious fucks of the 20th century, sort of functioning as the villain of the show in as much as there is one. But as it goes on and on, it just it just complicates that idea. And I find that relationship so dynamic to watch. Because so basically, um, Roy Cohn is sort of in his element at the very beginning of the movie, but as it goes along, as was historically the truth, he like begins to suffer from AIDS and eventually dies from it. And when he... So he spends... He spends most of the movie actually in the hospital, paired up with this nurse, who, despite despising him and everything he stands for and has worked to accomplish and worked to destroy, is, it seems in times, like, basically in spite of himself, unable to deny him some compassion. I mean, a, a, a phrase that kept coming to me is this phrase, like, blank is, is something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Mm-hmm. It takes mm-hmm. this idea of dying of AIDS, this buried crisis of the 80s, something that, you know, you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And it just shows basically one of the worst fucking guys ever dying of it and shows how, you know, the character Belize, who I think is one of the most sort of admirable in the ensemble, just affords him this humanity and this care, not in denial of Cone's like, evil deeds but knowingly in spite of them i just think there's been an interesting sort of like discourse the past 10 years or so about how much grace do we afford people who want to destroy us you know this this idea of how much and 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 particularly like to, to 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 zero in on an aspect of it like as artists where is the good and the bad in humanizing people who are hateful and i think that I don't even know if I can unpack that whole thing, but I do feel like sometimes we have, we feel like there's this kind of like the choice is either just 
you know, demonize the bad and like drive the wedge further or whitewash over, sanitize the the like misdeeds of bad people. And neither of those really seems like a good option. I feel like this does manage in the in the fullness of the play to I mean it you know, it raises questions as you said well it's like it doesn't give answers but it it raises interesting questions about the humanity of some of the worst people around and like what is that worth and how do we treat them and it it just mm. weaves it into the story in a very interesting way well I think we see three examples of how to contend with pure evil between the the people that have relationships with him are Lewis mm-hmm. with the idea of him, Belize, and with um, Joe Pitt. Mm-hmm. Joe, who is like personally helped by Ro- Roy Cohn, like over sympathizes with him, and his morals are like tested and pushed to the limit for being in that relationship. Lewis is hyper political, hyper liberal, mm, hyper white liberal, <laughs> hyper white Jewish liberal. Yeah. Um, and cannot even withstand the mere idea or mere notion of Roy Cohn in any way. Belize is sort of interestingly in the middle of them, not out of choice, but because he's forced to. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that in the cast of, I think it's eight, Belize is the only person of color. There's one mm-hmm. black character, and then the rest are all white characters. And Belize does not choose to like offer Roy this compassion. He is forced to. He is the nurse that is assigned mm-hmm. where that man is is, you know, is in the hospital. Yeah. And so he does his job, but he does not hold back from saying exactly how he feels. Mm-hmm. And Roy vilifies the fuck out of him. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's both like visceral and visceral and horrible to watch. But you watch how Belize articulates, like, oh, if I didn't have control over what I wanted to do or what I should do, these are all of the ways that I, as a standing healthy person, would take you down right now. Mm -hmm. And you see that, and then you watch him, like, manage, basically, that impulse. And it's the hatred of who he is and and what he stands for is still there, and yet he chooses to, I don't know, sort of contain it and that's where there is so much interest in in the conversation that they have because Mm -hmm. neither of them steps down from the way that they believe they both like lean in and just like use words a lot Mm -hmm. instead of actions Mm -hmm. um i don't know where that leaves us Certainly a very interesting scene study, but... Um, I was really moved by the scene where... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I no, would, no. to add to that, I was really moved by the scene where Roy dies. I mean, we're really... We're jumping all around here, but this is the end of the, the miniseries and Roy dies and believes, I think, in the absolutely unquestionably ethically correct move, decides to take all of this AZT that Roy has been hoarding for himself Mm -hmm. and sort of become a Robin Hood figure and distribute that. But sort of in order to feel morally okay about that choice, he brings in Lewis to like say the Kaddish over Roy's body as this sort of like acknowledgement of Mm -hmm. you you are a person who died. We are taking something from you and we are not thankful for you. We are not grateful for you but we should acknowledge like what's happening and it was such an interesting choice and such an interesting reflection of i think belize's moral code which i think is probably the most 
correct moral code in the play in a way. Like I think mm-hmm. Belize is sort of the moral center of the play. And I just mm-hmm. really liked yeah. all, I just really loved that scene. And Lewis sort of just seething at the idea of having to say this and, and then getting the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg to help him give the blessing and then ending it with like, yeah. and also fuck you. Like, I just really loved that whole sequence. And a little fun, little Jewish aside when he accidentally says, Bore Prihagafen, which is the blessing on the wine. I lolled at that. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a terrific, terrific scene. And and move for Belize's character. And I, I, I again, it's, yeah, it's just coming back to this, again, that phrase of um, a fate I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, which is to sort of say, like, there is a line beyond which, like, no human being deserves to suffer. And I just think it drives home this idea of, like, as it ties into the thematic exploration of the AIDS crisis, the idea of, like, this is this was like an atrocity that was allowed to spread in this massive way. And, 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 and the idea of some things nobody deserves. I just thought that was very powerful. I also thought maybe this is going to sound stupid to say this like it was surprising, but Al Pacino was so good in this series. I think mm, he's an actor yeah. for as beloved as he is. He can sometimes be a little much for me. Like I think you can get Pacino performances I don't love that go very big. And I think having him play someone like Roy Cohn could easily be a performance where he leans into the bigness of it. And he has moments of that. But I also think overall, he is just far more restrained than I was expecting. And I was like really kind of blown away by how good I thought he was. And I mean, I think Roy Cohn was a very big like, like you know, like people lauded Donald Trump for being, I'm going to say what I mean, I'm going to take up space, I'm going to not be afraid to yell, like all of these things. And what does it mean to have something come along that can take even that down, that mm-hmm. can take away that pure, raw, like masculinity that we value so much in American politics and take that to the ground? I think you watch him like grapple with that a, a lot. And he still does like have a lot of the big... I'm screaming mm-hmm. at, into the wind or at people, Al Pacino mm-hmm. moments. I mean, I think the cast is incredible. Every single performer is like top of the game. And it's really interesting. I, I feel like this is a good way to transition to yeah. something I know we're going to talk about. Yeah, let's. It's really I have complicated notions on like what it means to see this story told by an all- heterosexual cast because it's not about that they're not good performers they're incredible performers they do justice to the material like all that kind of stuff i think i'm right in saying that there are no queer people in this cast that is my understanding yes i don't know like i don't super know justin kirk who plays prior i don't know everybody but i think you're right that it is at least a predominantly straight cast i i would i would bet $10 $10 that I think it's an all straight cast. <laughs> yes, I think you would be vindicated in that. I can also tell you that the IMDb page had, I, I can't pull it up right now, it was like, FAQ, are there any openly gay actors in this cast? And the answer was no, but Mary Louise Parker has been vocally supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. I said, thank okay. you, Mary Louise. I thank appreciate you. you. From the Mary inside Louise. of my closet where I'm recording this <laughs> podcast right now. Thank you so much for your support, Mary Louise, and great yes. job in Angels in America. So, yes, we got a like minimal queer involvement in the making of this, to my knowledge, in at least the, the like creative principles outside of the author. And yeah, so you mm-hmm. have a, a director and a cast all of whom are doing 
what in 2003 was considered by the mainstream to be essentially just an impressive and brave thing to do. Which brave, is playing, yes. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is playing queer characters. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, award shows and public opinion really continue to this day to celebrate as a brave thing to do. And, like, this miniseries is incredible, was really well-received, won a lot of awards. This play on Broadway, several performers, including Jeffrey Wright, won Tony Awards for it. The actor who played Roy Cohn, and I think one other one, and I think, okay, well, Jeffrey Wright is not queer, uh, who and the only person to reprise the Broadway role mm-hmm. in this film. But I am almost positive that the other Tony Award winners were also not queer. Anyway, I think this is really the beginning of something that we saw for the next several decades, which is really prominent performances of queer material by straight actors and them being given awards and a lot of appreciation for what it means for them to tell a queer story. This gets into like so many things that I'm like... I don't even know if I have, like, a... There's a school of thought that's, like, I don't ever want to see a gay character or a queer character played by a straight actor ever again. And part of me really believes that. But then a lot of people are like, but it's acting. And to that, I will I will make a partial concession in this for right now. Queer storytelling in Hollywood and in major spaces has not been shaped and told and articulated from the voices of queer people. Like, almost at all, in a shocking way. Mm -hmm. I'm, like, so not ready to hear any more straight people in a queer story until we've had, like, at least that amount of time to sort of, like, reclaim and reshape the narratives. Because I still feel like we're inheriting storytelling in the way that the straight majority or, you know, the cishet, you know, power structures deem it acceptable. I just, I don't want to say that I never, ever, ever want to see, you know, Mary Louise Parker or Al Pacino or Jeffrey Wright play another queer character or or any of their, you know, any of the people that come after them. It's just that I, I don't want them to take up any more space until we really have had the opportunity to flesh out what those stories mean for ourselves. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's probably worth acknowledging that the subtitle of Angels in, in America is literally a gay fantasia on national themes, which may yes. which maybe reflects the way that this play in particular, even more than other stories that feature gay or queer characters, is putting that at its center. Like it is not a play where it's incidental that some of the characters are gay. That is, it is a gay fantasia <laughs> as a mm-hmm. story. I don't really know if I have a... St- strong thought on this type of casting per se probably less so than you do but i'm i'm in a stage of listening and learning and hearing lots of opinions and i don't know being open to what people have to say this came up again um when the there was a really high profile revival and i want to say 2018 where andrew garfield played prior and i know that was a big discussion that was happening then because he's a straight actor and i think his mm. portrayal of prior i think there was a lot of discussion of like how much is that portrayal which some people love. I think he won a Tony as well. But it was sort of like, how much is that leaning into a stereotypical imagining of what a gay man is like versus something that feels authentic to who Pryor is? Yeah. I, I want to real fast, because I did look it up 
do a quick shout out to Steven Spinella, the original Broadway prior Walter, who is an openly gay actor and a great actor. Um, and he and also won a Tony. On, won a Tony and then went on yeah, to okay. play also Roy Cohn in a revival. I also saw him in Spring Awakening. He great. Mm. Um, Wait, who was he in Spring Awakening? He was the, he was the, he's dad. He's like the adult oh, male. The male. He was like the father. figure yeah. or whatever. That gives um, my heart some good. Yeah. He's uh, also. Thank you for sharing that information. Oh, absolutely. He's also a mother's younger brother in Ragtime. So oh. you can hear him on that. Fun. Belting Love out. That. Belting out. But you um but say on Union Square. Is that yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that's him. Well, and so, I we're both ready to go with our yeah, good <laughs> to go. references. Okay, that makes but, me happy to know, and I and I want there to be more of that. Mm-hmm. But well yeah, I think that's I think you're completely completely in the right to just say like all all we want is more. Because I do think that it's it's one of those things where I wonder if there's a name for the logical fallacy where a, a, a sort of an iconic example of it is there's a there's sort of a popular fallacy in the theater world these days that it's gotten very hard for white actors to get roles because of like a sort of like 10 year old push to include more representation of non-white characters and non-white actors. So this idea sort of gets around of like to to use the kind of language which will sometimes be, I mean I, I don't want to even use the like the conservative like even people I feel like in our circle will say like, you know people are centering other people's narratives so for white actors but actually if you look at the stats it's like still something like eighty percent of characters in theater productions and eighty percent of the cast are still going to be all white so I don't know what that logical fallacy would be but I do feel like the push to have more queer actors telling these stories, inhabiting these roles, is always going to meet that same kind of resistance, as every kind mm-hmm. of change always does. It meets this sort of like intransigent like friction. But I, I, I do think, I think, that, you know, none of us is at a place of like hard and fast rules, but just saying like, we're still so far from parody of any kind mm-hmm. that... And for gay actors playing straight characters as well, sorry to interrupt, but I think that that's another thing yes. you don't see in reverse, that a lot of Actors have talked about not wanting to come out because they're worried that then people will not cast them for straight roles. So there's not a parody of, oh, it doesn't matter. Anyone can play anything. That tends to lean towards what we actually mean by that is straight actors can play gay characters, but we don't necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. there can be pushback when it happens in the opposite way. And then part of the reasoning when we're like, oh, well, we there's just like not someone famous enough to do a movie about Harvey Milk is because queer actors like do not get even opportunities to tell their own stories Mm -hmm. so it's all just like this self-fulfilling prophecy this like snake eating its own tail of like there's a lack of opportunity which then means there's not credits on the resume they don't have you know public opinion behind them they're not household names so that when we really want a star to you know there's like well there is no gay Meryl Streep like yeah because Meryl Streep was like really talented and had every opportunity available to her Mm -hmm. so if we made the you know if we made opportunity more I don't even want to say more equitable more just I'm like fuck equity like pay more attention to the queer actors you know I I don't really I don't do film really I do a lot of theater but there are a lot of times where people will make an effort in the outreach to be like, we really want to consider queer actors for this role. We really want to consider non-binary trans actors for this role. And then when I see them not follow through on that, 
you know, I know the people who auditioned for that role. I -hmm. know that there were very competent, qualified people, but they might not have the same resumes as the people that they picked. And there's a reason for that, because Mm -hmm. this decision-making continues to perpetuate those things. Mm-hmm. It's resumes, and it's also, I'd say even more insidious way, just, you know, directors being like, I have a sort of a type I I have in mind for this. And like, that's going to be based on precedent, and the precedent is going to be mm-hmm. an overwhelmingly sort of cishet acting crew. I mean, I feel like, let's not on this episode, I think, go dredging up too much of our own theater culture from Northwestern, but we've we've sort of alluded to before, and it was a very, I don't know, it was a very sort of, I'd say, traditionally macho, heterosexual, favoring, theatrical landscape, it seemed to me. Yes. (laughs) Should we talk about the Belize performance as a performance and how well we think that works? Like sort of acknowledging the casting of it. But I'm curious, well, because it sounded like you maybe had some thoughts about that too, like how the character functions in the play. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think the performance, like Jeffrey Wright's performance as Belize, I think is a really good performance and it seems like lived in it seems naturally it doesn't seem stereotypical but when I see him walk through the background of a scene or something and I like notice the way he's holding his hand with like a limp wrist that I would never see Jeffrey Wright you know I Mm -hmm. part of me is like what am I going to be like good character work or (laughs) because and and this was also something I didn't think about the first time I watched this when I watched this in college because I wasn't having these thoughts in my head I wasn't Mm -hmm. like googling everyone's Wikipedia to see the sexuality of these characters I was just able to like you know receive the story and part of me wants to still be in that place but the other part of me knows that like the perpetuation of that can be really harmful and is like still keeping sort of I don't know like my stories away from me in a way Mm -hmm. so like do I think it's a great performance yes Here's why I think it's a great performance. Because in this thing of, like, two-person scenes, I see how he's, like, one fleshed-out, full human being who has all of these different sides of himself that you see activated the moment he's in a room with Lewis, the moment he's in a room with Pryor, the moment he's in a room with with Roy. And, like, the, the technical crafting and the skill of it is incredible. Like, I totally understand why you won all these awards for it. But... Coming back to it this time, he, it, it's hard. It's hard for me to not be distracted by. The, it takes me out of the storytelling mm-hmm. a little bit to be analyzing that truth that I know is present. Th- that's why I get to the roadblock of like I don't want to say that it's a bad thing for Jeffrey Wright to ever have played that role and played it well, but I also know all of you know the black queer actors in my own personal circles and that I've encountered on television and movies and theater that I wonder what it would have been like I wonder what would be different what would be electrified what would be nuanced not that his wasn't any of those things I just you know I wonder what more would have been Mm -hmm. you said it I think it's a good insight into sort of what does make Belize unique as a character is that we are seeing he's maybe the only character that we see in his personal life and his professional life and I guess not his actual Mm. personal life because there's this theme that like he has a boyfriend that his friends haven't even met because he's almost he's got like his real personal life with his boyfriend or his partner and then his this life where he's sort of ministering to this uh like downtown community yeah Mm. and then his like friends his friendship with Pryor and Lewis and then also his job as a nurse with Roy and it is really interesting to see him sort of flip to these different modes and we'll see him where he has these very sweet scenes where he's just comforting prior 
as a friend and he's lean he's we also in the Belize is like been a drag queen in the past maybe he's going to start doing it again and so I think you are seeing like one side of him with Pryor and then with Lewis they have such a funny I really like the the Lewis Belize love hate relationship <laughs> where mm-hmm. Lewis will just say absolutely it's inane insane liberal things and Belize is like what the fuck are you talking about like you sound like an idiot I really enjoy that and then obviously the Roy dynamic that we talked about a lot but that is none of the other characters really quite have that like seeing them in multiple states the way we do with Belize and I do think that's actually Mm -hmm. a really a really cool thing about the character in addition then to Jeffrey Wright also playing these other sort of small roles with the double casting throughout the story as well. And I think, again, it's not an accident that that's the one person of color in the story that is forced to shapeshift in this way and to, like, be able to wear all these hats and melt fluidly through all of them. Yeah. Um, I also love the Belize Joe relationship. Like, my favorite, one of my favorite bits of the movie, as as, as opposed to, like, imagining the play, is that one scene when they're in the diner and Lewis is just going on and on and on (laughs) and on and on and on on. which I imagine like you know when you're watching a play normally you're like listening to who's talking and this is partly because Jeffrey Wright's amazing and the brows the brows whoever did Jeffrey Wright's (laughs) brows and and Mary Louise Parker but mostly Jeffrey Wright's brows Mm -hmm. really slayed it um (laughs) the way it's shot like the angle and sort of like the sound he's like a little drowned out but you are watching that scene where he's just going on and on and on and on and on and Jeffrey Wright does not say a single thing for so long and yet the whole scene is about him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a good call. Just yeah. like withstanding all of this nonsense, like waiting for it to be over, like filing away all of the all of the things <laughs> that he's about to like I will eviscerate you with one sentence in the way that you have like filled up this whole breakfast with yeah. your you know tirade with your blabbering yeah the rate the yeah the ratio of like of dialogue in that scene is extremely powerful and the way that it sort of messes with the the power dynamics there i mean i've seen some complaints about lewis online describing him as annoying which just have the like slightest tiniest little hint of anti-semitism dog whistle Mm -hmm. i feel like annoying can be a little bit of like a can be a road to whiny and then whiny can lead to like jewy so i will say as a jew that lewis is annoying with his like overanalyzing like liberal chitter chatter. So yeah, that is a great that is a great like dynamic that they have here. I feel like another piece of vocabulary that we've that has entered at least my consciousness in the past few years is this idea of emotional labor. That's a great mm-hmm. lens to look at the character of Belize and the roles that he plays in all of these is like doing tremendous emotional labor for the sort of white people who lean on him. I, and, and I do think, yeah, we see that with like all this tremendous restraint, which gives the character all this power. Mm. So I think all the pieces of that performance and looking at it, I continue to think it is pretty exceptionally well handled by Jeffrey Wright. I think it's honestly one of Jeffrey Wright's best performances of the ones we've discussed. If not, it might just be his best performance overall. Mm. And It's been 10 long years in which this conversation, at least I feel like, again, in my sense of the mainstream, has shifted significantly since since the time when we all first encountered this play. It's been, you know, 18 years since the actual movie was made. What you said, Will, about like that sort of like ignorance is bliss place of like part of me wishes I could go back to not seeing what is insidious about that. But that's just kind of like life is learning these Mm. things and being like, well, you know what? It was easier before I knew, but I can't and don't want to unknow. Even though it makes a great performance like this harder to watch, like the conversation evolving in this way 
will be, hopefully, if the world is allowed to spin forward, like a net positive. It's like, it's a great performance, but it's also, I think, and, you know, I am a white commentator, like applauding this like white author's writing of it, but it is a great character, I think. And Mm -hmm. hopefully it gets to be inhabited in the future by all the like, as you say, hundreds of thousands of talented performers whose lived experiences are probably more similar to that and less like, okay, how do I play this Mm -hmm. type? How do I find my way in? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because I'm sure whatever character study he did or whatever his process he did was probably great because it was well done. And, you know, I have to believe and hope and imagine that this will be done again. Of course it will be done again, but in a big and meaningful way because it is such a pivotal piece of work Mm -hmm. that it will be done, like, you know, by the all-queer cast that it deserves, or or at least the queer characters being played by queer casts, of Mm -hmm. which is the majority Mm -hmm. of them. You know, there was just such a big thing about that Boys in the Band revival being like, oh, the first all, you know, all-queer cast, you know, about an all-queer story, but that play is so self-hating. There's so much vitriol at each other. And it's not that it's not that this Angels in America doesn't have any elements of that, but there is room for queer resilience and queer joy and mm-hmm. like all of the themes that we really need. So we kind of like it felt shitty to me that like, yes, the boys in the band was maybe the first play on Broadway that had openly queer characters. Mm-hmm. But then, the you know, I guess it makes sense for then it to be the first fully queer cast. But it wasn't that was not a celebratory moment for me because I was like, we are decades beyond this play. And I I don't want to I don't really want to revisit the the closeted self-hating like evilness that we inflict upon each other within our own community like i i i i'm i'm thinking it just this is a bit of a sidebar will but just calling to mind like when i got to see you on stage a few years ago for the first time since school i think in this production of oklahoma which Mm. as you kind of discussed so this was at the oregon shakespeare festival and it was described to me i think you sort of prepped me by saying like Look, in terms of, like, staging and, like, the way a lot of the jokes play out and costuming things, it is, like, a very sort of traditional Broadway-ish Oklahoma, but in terms of casting, it is basically, like, use that as the as the template on which to basically create this sort of, like, queer utopia, and it was so celebratory, and so I'm just, like, I'm just reminded of that sort of constant call to, like, be able to see, as you say, like, queer joy and queer celebration and not just, mm-hmm. like not just queer misery and suffering, which seems to be something for which there is a maybe a slightly larger like public appetite. Because we're comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. like the cis heteronormative majority is comfortable with seeing us like continue to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think Angels in America, like it strikes an interesting middle ground where obviously a lot of the play is about suffering and darkness and angst, but I also think strikes a very hopeful note. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, I know it, debuted in in 1991 but you have to imagine that Kushner was sort of working on this at an even more heightened moment in the AIDS crisis and mm-hmm. he finds hope within that like the ending of the play is very it's because again I hadn't I qu- hadn't quite remembered how it actually ended like it is even more hopeful than I was anticipating it being and that's very nice like it ultimately is a very the great work begins baby yeah Yeah. it's a very life-affirming like Pryor has a line after he goes up to heaven where he's like i'd rather be sick and alive than give up living and just the final scene Mm -hmm. of all of them sort of at the fountain together and this idea that just life goes on and things change and i don't know it's such a just a 
beautiful, <laughs> like a piece of work. I feel like at some point in this, I just stopped even watching it critically and was just like taking notes for like things to adopt into my own life and worldview. Like there's this line where Joe, the Patrick Wilson repressed Mormon character who's having an affair with Lewis, who was Pryor's boyfriend. We really haven't done any plot summary here, but Joe has this line. <laughs> Lewis is like, I'm kind of always unhappy. And Joe's like, you believe the world is perfectible, and so you find it unsatisfying. And I was like, I need to write this down and put it on everywhere I can look at it every day, because <laughs> I've truly never heard something that sums up my worldview more than that concept. Like, I think, you know, Ned, you were talking about how some people find Lewis annoying. I kind of really like the, I think there's a boldness in making Lewis as annoying as he is and forcing you and not making him an antagonist. Like, then play is like, yes, this is a deeply flawed, fucked up dude. But we're not just going to present him as he's our antagonist for us all to hate. We sort of like have to grapple with his humanity and his flaws, which are obviously much less than the flaws of somebody like Roy Cohn, but are still very substantial flaws, especially completely abandoning his boyfriend of four years when he finds out he that his boyfriend has AIDS and is getting very sick. Lewis just full on pieces out and like just a full act of selfish cowardness. But the play does not sort of, it does not sympathize that, but it also does not villainize him for it. And I find that such an interesting tension to just, like, let exist. I really appreciated that. The, the, the tapestry of the ensemble and the way the play just, like, works them through and puts them in interesting combinations and just, like, exposes the different facets of them in that way is very... It's very humanizing, you know, in and in a, like, even outside of, like, a metric of, like, good and bad, it just it feels very... Actually, one of the, like, in that Vanity Fair video of Jeffrey Wright breaking down his different characters, which we've referenced on every episode so far, these 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 videos are so useful to us. But I need to watch it. Well, it's cute because it's in the pandemic and he's got his, like, he's in lockdown and he's got his, like, turtles in his little turtle tank swimming around yes, behind him. I've heard you mention cute. the turtles. <laughs> right. I, I really can't shut up about the can't turtles. Can't get but... past the turtles. But he says, uh, he talk, he says, Angels in America is sort of the center of my career. It's the epicenter anyway. And he says, it's one of the most human pieces that will ever be written. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that's a legit take, I think. I believe that because I think it really, it establishes its characters. It establishes Lewis as this like extremely neurotic person that cannot get past all of that. It, it establishes, you know, Harper as, you, you know, sort of, helpless and troubled that establishes Roy as stern and evil but then it finds a way to like Caroline said complicate that notion of how they're wading through the world without glorifying or vilifying any one person Mm -hmm. and that's how people are we're all contradictory we're all flawed um i love storytelling that creates space for that and sometimes if you want to fully explore that for a cast of seven or eight people like you do need kind of six hours if you're going to do that for more than just your protagonist Mm -hmm. and that's what i love about ensemble storytelling and i wish there was more ensemble storytelling Mm -hmm. that was in movies especially we see it sometimes in television because it goes on for so long yeah um you know like the sense eights of the world i guess but what's cool about this Love a Sensei is... shout out. We need to have more Sensei shout outs on this podcast regularly. Actually, well. I've never, I think I've only seen the pilot. I know I need to watch it, but I could just tell, you know. You, that will, yeah, yeah, you yeah, will be yeah. satisfied when you go back and, and rewatch it. Oh, I'm sure, rest. I'm sure. Anyway, um, you, you know, most of the other characters 
only get to serve one function, mm-hmm. only get to be, you know, and, and when you're only serving one function, then it does feel like, oh, okay, here's the neurotic Jewish person. That does feel kind <laughs> of like, you know, ugh. Um, yeah. but in in this, everyone is allowed to occupy and contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and that's why I think it is so human. And, and I would love to see more storytelling written that way. It is a very, I'm really just processing this in real time, like how smartly structured it is. Because if I can give a little bit, if I can get, if I can try to in real time work out like a little bit of plot summary or at least structural oh, yeah. summary. Try. You have like, you <laughs> Good have luck. two, you have a married yeah. Mormon couple, Joe and Harper. Joe, we also see scenes with him working as a lawyer for Roy Cohn. So we get, hit, I guess with Joe, we do see his professional life and his personal life. Then Joe also winds up hooking up with Lewis uh, as a sort of first in romantic sexual encounter with another man, which is this thing he's that Joe, the Mormon, has been repressing his whole life. Lewis is in a crisis because, as we've mentioned, his boyfriend prior has just been diagnosed with AIDS and is not doing well. And so he flees that relationship. And then you'll have scenes where sort of Harper who is like an agoraphobic Valium addict stuck in a very unhappy marriage. She will sort of enter a dream space where she encounters Pryor, who's sort of in a fever dream state of his own. And so they'll have little passing encounters. And of course, their two romantic partners are then hooking up with each other. So there's like a little bit of, I don't know, meta commentary of the two sort of like partners that were betrayed. And then, yeah, you have the sort of Joe and Lewis I mean, at times, very sweet love story. At times, sort of very disturbing love story. And I like that the mm-hmm. play and then the miniseries just allows you to exist in both. And then you also have, in, in what I think is maybe my favorite little through line of the story, you have Joe, Patrick Wilson, the Mormon. His mom ends up coming into town to sort of help with the marriage. And she very unexpectedly winds up forming this friendship with Pryor, sort of really just coincidental, circumstantial, because Pryor's been trying to spy on Joe to think... Oh, who's my boyfriend hooking up with? And then she, in her trying... This is one of the characters that Meryl Streep plays, probably the most substantial role she plays. But Mrs. Pitt is sort of trying to process the idea that her son is gay and how that connects to her own faith and also what it's like to be in New York City versus Salt Lake, where she's from. Mm -hmm. And Pryor becomes... They become this, like, surrogate mother-son figure in a really lovely way. And at the end of the play, when it's sort of... We're we're checking in on our ensemble at the very end, and we discover that five years after the uh, main events of the play, it's uh, Pryor and Lewis don't get back together, but they stay friends. They're still friends with Belize. And then the other sort of... (laughs) The fourth in that little Sex in the City uh, quartet is Mrs. Pitt, who's just sort of like become their friend and will, you know, have her little little fun days in the park where they sort of banter about intellectual issues. And it's such an unexpected endpoint for that ensemble to sort of have as their final image. But it just speaks to the way, I don't know, all these people's lives are sort of interconnected and shape each other. And it's Roy's AZT that winds up sort of allowing Pryor to live longer than he would have expected. And it's sort of all of mm-hmm. these things looping together in these really cool and interesting ways. It's an incredibly brilliant little lattice work, little hollow bread of a structure. It just, it just how it all ties together is yeah, really, really smart, including like all these historical elements like woven in, in a really smart way. Yeah. There's also a great scene where I I found the arc of Hannah Pitt. So surprising Mm -hmm. of those characters. She's the one 
you know, with my context of only having encountered Millennium Approaches, she's the one who you meet in Millennium Approaches, and you have the least of a sense of how she could be like a likable protagonist. She, in the first half, is essentially only an extremely like cold, almost punitive Mormon mother. Mm-hmm. So her arc of Again, like human compassion. It's not it's not like pity. There's a line where she covers she goes, Don't have any pity, I just don't have it. Never have, or something like that. Um, but it's really it's a fun thing. And she also gets she also gets to make out with the angel at the end in like yeah. an inc- incredible, <laughs> astounding image when really important scene. <laughs> yeah, a really important scene when the angel crashes down to the hospital and Pryor wrestles with it and then Pryor is climbing a flaming ladder to heaven and then the angel kind of turns and looks at Meryl Streep. She's like, Oh, th- this isn't about me and she tries to get out of the room and the angel says, the body is the garden. And I guess kind of, it's like the the enunciation. It's like a benediction of, I don't know, maybe like sexual awakening of some kind. But mm-hmm. it's that's an extremely rad scene of them sort of floating in the air with Meryl's little like uh, respectable high heels like dangling yeah. off of her toes. <laughs> and that one scene, I think like makes a, you know, makes a compelling argument for like, well, the angel and Hannah, you know, are queer people too. Like mm-hmm. maybe yes. the only non-queer character is Harper. Harper. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Should we talk about Harper for a second? And maybe more specifically, wh- what do we all think of Mary Louise Parker? She's someone I've never quite felt like I've connected with, with as much as some people just like some people just love her right there's like a whole i feel like there's a real gaga for mary louise parker energy out there and i've never quite been able to get on that wavelength i mean she plays a beautiful ingenue in this moment Hmm. In in the very typical sense of an ingenue that it's like i am facing problems that i can't solve alone what i do think is beautiful about mary louise parker's ingenue harper and I mean, maybe that's Mary Louise Parker, maybe that's just Tony Kushner, but the way she interprets too, mm-hmm. is that she's actually more comfortable being helpless and alone and figuring it out herself than being in a situation that's no longer serving her. Like, you know, you see, they have this whole backstory of him, of her always sort of not fitting in and being a little mm, like eccentric or, or whatever the thing is and him sort of swooping in and saving her. But then, you know, they're in this... Loveless is not the term, but sexless, certainly, marriage. And she knows it's not what she wants. She knows it's not what she needs. And, you know, she's kind of this, like, unfulfilled housewife that's afraid of everything far away from anyone or anything she knows. But she does love him, but she knows that she can't get what she needs here. And so she's kind of like, you know, I'll work with the tools that I have Mm -hmm. instead of waiting around anymore. And I think that's really cool and really interesting. And I wouldn't say, like, I'm obsessed with Mary Louise Parker, but I do find her compelling. Mm. Her kind of intrigue is not in the, like, Jeffrey Wright believes, I think is very complex I, I don't know. I don't know that I would use like complexity or deftness to describe that performance, but there is something very like startlingly unique that I think really makes you lean in and root for her, mm-hmm. and want her to be able to you know survive the things she's up against and empathize for her. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of just I love it when she's you know she's just like oh, I burnt dinner. Like you know yeah. how many pills did I take today? Like. You know, I don't really know. I feel like maybe if I hadn't seen as many, I just, Mary Louise Parker to me is one of those actors who's like, she has her thing, Mm -hmm. right? And this is maybe in contrast to Jeffrey Wright, who I think is a very transformative actor and each role feels different. Mary Louise Parker, you're always getting Mary Louise Parker deadpan Mm -hmm. energy. And sometimes I'm like, (laughs) how much of this is, 
I don't know, feel a little gimmicky to me. Again, I will fully acknowledge I'm in the minority there. I think she's a very beloved and well-respected actor, but I don't know. Ned, what are your Mary Louise Parker slash Harper thoughts? I don't know that I have like actually seen her in anything ever. Mm. So I couldn't tell. I found it was, it was mostly working for me that it made, it gave her this sort of like wide eyed sort of like guileless wonder at times. But I, I, I will say there was one or two like line deliveries, like, it was just like ozone, wow, and yep. I'm like, what? Uh, hmm, I can't decide, <laughs> cannot decide if great or not. I feel like it worked. I, I yeah, mm. but she was a she was a question mark for me. I admit. I also wonder if the fact that this play was like written, like Tony Kushner was working on part two, I think, as part one was like being put on its feet, mm-hmm. and I almost feel like I would I would maybe need to do a little more dramaturgical research to. 100% back up what I'm going to say. But I almost feel like you can feel him. Like, I think Harper is really central to part one. Yeah. And I think becomes less central and less interesting in part two. And actually, that's the, kind of the opposite track of Belize. Like, I feel like almost as Tony Kushner was writing this story, he started like, oh, let's contrast this, like, mar- this unhappy marriage with this, like, complicated relationship between Lewis and Pryor and sort of how those intersect. And then I feel in the second half, he actually became much more interested in sort of the found queer found family dynamics of which Belize Mm -hmm. is much more central and it almost feels like like by the end by the time the end of part two is like checking back in on Harper I was like oh yeah I kind of forgot she existed like she felt like she wound up feeling kind of superfluous towards the end of the play and I wonder if Kushner had sort of been working on this as one long piece if he would have reduced her role in the first one or sort of changed it structurally. It's it's a moment that feels less like an intentional shift and more like, oh, I wrote two plays and I changed my mind about some things before I wrote part two. Yeah, you do see her very much off on her own at the end. She's like kind of in her own journey and her own like fantasy land. And I do think that I thank you for bringing the subtitle back in a gay fantasia on national themes I think one of the national themes that is being addressed is mental health. Mm-hmm. And I think she is very much there to embody that story. And so I think she fulfills an important function, but in the way that where we start and where we end, like Hannah gets more important and Belize yeah. gets more important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She definitely does get less important. There starts to be less conflict with her. And she, you know, once she says like, I'm going, do whatever you want, but I got to take care of me. That's, you know, the when we the rest of what we see her is just like a little bit of her on that journey and then mm-hmm. she seems like kind of, you know, just mildly supportive of of Joe, you know, fulfilling his his destiny. So I do think her function just dims a little bit there, but I I don't think I think the play would be missing a lot without her. Mm. Mhm. Yes. Including <laughs> the uh, the Man to woman ratio would become even more heinously stacked, but yeah, I do, I do agree that it would be missing something. Although, I do also sort of wish that she was threaded into the second half a little bit more. I kind of thought, mm. again, with my like only having seen the first half for a decade, I really thought of her and Pryor as sharing what I consider to be the lead role, and for I would sure. definitely not describe that as the dynamic in the full thing. No. But it was it was also, you know, very rewarding to me to see that I kind of thought as Belize as being like a very small, like almost like a featured player kind of a thing. And then, you know, in episode four, suddenly like he has all kinds of scenes and I'm like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And it makes sense that he won the award for Perestroika mm, in which yeah. he's so much more heavily featured. Yeah. And then Pro- 
the, the actors who played Pryor and Roy, that's mm. right, won, won the first for mm-hmm. Millennium Approaches. Well, let's talk about Pryor. What do we think about Pryor? This was a performance that for me I was really like unsure on for the first three episodes. Maybe because I really loved the person who gave this performance at the Northwestern version. And who was really it? stuck in my head. It was Nate Trinrude. Did you know him? Yeah. Nate Trinrude. I thought was great. such a good Pryor. Who else was in it? I want to hear the whole Northwestern cast. This is funny because I was actually messaging with people today to try to remember all of... The people I remembered were actually Nate Trinrude as... Pryor and then Laura Heisinger as Harper, mm. who I thought were the like the two standout performances right. for me, which might be why I remember them. Ned, who else? You were you were Ned had a better memory of the cast than I did. This Not is my need to name all of our. This is my <laughs> freak secret but. ability is to remember who was in plays at Northwestern ten years Ned ago. Is very good with names, um, just in general. So yeah, you had James Daniel from Meow Improv was uh, Joe. You had a guy, I, I couldn't look it up, but I think his name was Kyle. And then Caroline, you echoed that, played Lewis. Craig Thompson was as Roy. I loved his performance. I thought it was amazing. It was a little bit more sort of like a like crew cut macho, but uh, mm-hmm. I thought he was really great. Um, Claire Newman was maybe also a meow. She was, uh, she was Hannah slash um, uh, rabbi, rabbi slash, mm-hmm. uh, slash Ethel. Although Ethel only appears in one scene in that. And uh, Ali Gallerani was the angel. And the guy who played Belize, I had not, I don't think I ever saw him in anything else. His name might have been Joel something. I think that was the cast. It's an wow. impressive memory for a play you we saw. What, t- 2009, he said? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these things, they'll just, they'll, I don't know, th- there's things I should be remembering that won't stick, but this stuff will will stick forever. It's very um, impressive. Nate, well, Nate first, was great. At first, yeah, I was going to say, at first, Justin Kirk, as prior in the miniseries, did not stand up to my mental image of Nate Trinrude from 2009, but I really liked his performance in the second half, especially. I think he's just excellent in... in the scenes where Pryor is like grappling with this biblical prophecy he's been given and being at times fully intimidated by it and at times like so fun- funny and sarcastically dismissive of it. And then times like just fully leaning into it, like running mm-hmm. around the streets of New York City in a black cloak looking like a dementor. I like, loved <laughs> that so much. I think it's, it, I think it is another really good performance. I don't know that actor. Um, yeah, I, didn't I don't either. know his. I don't know his other work, Me neither. but I think the way that he, he's sort of the central character to me. And mm-hmm. I think there's an argument for it being Roy, but I think Pryor's a central mm-hmm. character to me in an ensemble cast. But I think the way he grapples with all of it, he has like, you know, the big scenes, like the big mm-hmm. betrayal, the big I'm interacting with the supernatural, like the actual, Roy dies, yes, but, you know... Pryor has the scene of like, you know, of his health deteriorating and being in the apartment and like, you know, like shitting himself and like all of that, like the gruesome aspects Mm -hmm. of like having your body shut down, being on the brink and going back and forth and back and forth and convinced you're going to die. And then somehow, you know, because Belize takes the AZT from Roy is saved at the last moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he has an incredible arc over the six hours and does it really well. And I think... I think his ability to bring that biting humor is a really important part of it. And also, like, I don't, maybe this is a weird thing to say, but, like, he manages to still be, like, 
sexy at moments. Mm-hmm. You like he mm-hmm. has a he has like a, a relationship with his sexuality throughout the yeah. whole thing. And I mean like there's this like funny bit that like the visitings and the visions of the angels like give him a boner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Um so like that's that's one thing, but I but I like his sensuality and his sexuality like is remains present. Yeah. Well, because it means that he's not just defined by his death and his illness. Yes, exactly. I think Kushner's smart yeah. to not say, oh, here's our tragic gay character dying of AIDS. Like, that's all that they are. He, he right. definitely still gives prior layers throughout. Yeah, he's, he's funny and sexy and clever. He has this, like, incredible articulate vocabulary. The line I wrote down is, uh, modesty forbids a description, but I have an infallible barometer of her mm-hmm. proximity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was so funny. So... Yeah, it's a great character. I, I'd say I also enjoyed that performance. I like his sort of like confounded, frustrated, like kind of funny throwaway lines. You know, you wrestle her. I don't know how to wrestle. Mm-hmm. Just like I think he does a, a good job. I, I also was like I came into episode one a little uncertain as well, particularly because their very first scene, the scene where Pryor sort of informs Lewis uh, that he has AIDS is like – Something about that scene like doesn't click for me. It just like feels like it comes way. out too fast. But but then they both had time to win me over, which they did mm-hmm. do. There's a fun video on YouTube that I've watched a bunch a bunch that is comparing that scene. It's like the park bench scene from the Andrew Garfield production. And then there was a sort of there was some sort of just the theatrical event. It wasn't a fully staged version of the show. I think it was just people doing various scenes. And it's that scene where Dominic Cooper, my beloved Dominic Cooper, is playing Lewis and Andrew Scott, my beloved Andrew Scott, is playing Pryor. Mm. This is a hot priest from Fleabag. Um, what's his name from Sherlock? And Moriarty from Sherlock. And he is so yeah. good. Like Garfield is good too. He's playing it very differently. But like the Andrew Scott, like kind energy <laughs> is so compelling in that scene and it's very interesting to see them back to back and then to watch this production too and just be reminded how much different performers can bring very different energies to the same scene and for the record andrew scott is gay yeah just gonna throw that out there and a nice example actually of getting to play both roles that are gay and roles that are straight Came a real mm-hmm. hot priest icon. Hot there. priest, <laughs> one of the sexiest heterosexual characters on TV yeah. ever. Yeah, for sure. I always forget that when I'm doing like a podcast, the audience can't see what I'm doing, but <laughs> there was snaps throughout that <laughs> for everyone to imagine. The snaps were present. <laughs> Something that I forgot about the character of Prior Walter in the last 10 years until I came back to it is how much of an important part of the character is that he comes from extreme privilege. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily mean it's not clear like how wealthy his family is or Their is apartment not is nice though. The, the apartment is nice for sure. But lineage wise, he's yeah. like, I come from a long line of people from the Mayflower and all of these other things. And so there's a, a, a colonial history, but B, like he is positioned to sort of be the American golden boy Mm -hmm. and then how that sort of deteriorates through obviously, you know, being queer robs him of that glory or that familial heritage and then seeing him, you know, um, grapple with who he was supposed to be and watch uh, watch his literal body and life deteriorate and like, you know, fall like sand through his fingers. And that added a like an interesting layer that I forgot mm-hmm. was a part of it. And I don't, I yeah, I don't know how I feel about that layer, uh, but I, but it is 
It is prevalence mm-hmm. as a part of the character. The entitlement. We see we see that like he he there's there he was at least told whether or not it's felt, there is an entitlement to life that he has. It's a good observation. It's sort of lineage and passing on your name and there's there's a scene where we see two of his ancestors from like one from like medieval times, it seems like, and one from yeah. maybe the 1700s or something and you get a scene of them the ancestors watching prior have this fantasy romantic dance with lewis and then you see the ancestors sort of processing what that means and then mm-hmm. the ancestors are bringing up that like one of them through lived through a plague like the black plague and so mm-hmm. yeah there's definitely a lot happening <laughs> yeah i like that dimension while we're talking about other elements of the ensemble. I just want to shout out uh, Emma Thompson's acting choices as the angel, which were not incredible. As we we kind of talked about how the even just the writing of that character is not. She's not like ethereal or soft in the way in which I think a- angelic has come to mean. She's this like weird, intense. I don't know, like like surrealist. I I I I I don't know how to describe it except I took a note at one point. I said Emma Thompson as the angel is camp. It's just like so <laughs> like large and droning and imperious and I don't know words are really failing me in describing what is like so bizarre and funny and striking about this performance she does as the angel but it is certainly not what I expected. Mm-hmm. It's camp but it's also fully the embodiment of a fever dream. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so effective in that setting. And and the whole time prior is contending with and telling his friends, like, I think I'm going crazy. And that's the other like part of the mental health picture that's like prevalent in this in this movie. And um and and that's because of his visions. Cause he's like, I'm so sure I'm being visited by these ghosts and this angel and all this kind of stuff. And all of the best camp is only camp because it doesn't intend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, like the moment you aim to create camp, it sort of loses its power. Right. Um and the writing of that character is almost illogical. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, she's going on these, like, long speeches and, like, half of the words seem made up. And I, 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 I don't know why. I just, like, I imagine Tony Kushner in the, in the thick of what it meant to actually be living that experience and trying to put that into words and into mm-hmm. expression that wasn't literal um, because it was, I imagine, larger than life and it was all-consuming. And I love that the angel is just this, like, you know, otherworldly, almost as if it's a different language. Mm-hmm. And the way she delivers it is is very foreboding, very imposing. And then when things, like, don't really quite go the way she plans mm-hmm. them to, like, you watch her sort of, like, break the character, not break the character, but, like, break the presentation that yes, she's prepared sure. and she's like wait uh excuse me uh <laughs> you are the prophet you are supposed yeah. to be doing what i and then she's like looking up at the heavens and being like it's not going well yeah, yeah. it's so brilliant and her countenance is as gorgeous as yeah. as you know as her what is it you get you said it caroline yep her wrath is as fearsome her as her countenance is splendid yes mm. yes yes it, yeah. i mean and that is the line that sums up that whole character mm-hmm as she's just like, I, 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 like, have a hundred eyes and eight vaginas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> and a lovely contrast to how 
sweet and naturalistic Emma Thompson is as the nurse that's taking the double casting as the nurse that's Gorgeous. taking care of Pryor, which is just like also a wonderful performance. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a very small role, but you really feel that. I mean, God, like talk about people that are fucking real life living angels. Like everyone who dedicated themselves to healthcare during the AIDS crisis at a time mm-hmm. when a lot of people didn't like. I don't know. Sidebar just to say those people are incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've sort of, uh, we've kind of gone into it about Justin Kirk, Mary Louise Parker, Emma Thompson, Al Pacino. And we have to talk about Patrick Wilson. Pat Wilson. I, I was... don't think we've mentioned on the podcast that I feel like Patrick Wilson is a major bonding point for you, me, and Emily. Like, I really feel like we might be the three biggest Patrick Wilson fans in the entire world. I mean, he's got, he's, uh, we might be surprised because there, there are some real, he, He's clearly got a base, but I think Patrick Wilson is great and dreamy and I don't know, like Millennium Approaches Joe is kind of like the urtext of the Patrick Wilson role. I you get he goes into some other places in the second half, but the like sort of stoic American farm boy, like clear moral compass. Really it's like the just like the first two episodes. That is I feel like the part he's always playing but i think he is great through all of the places that that joe gets to i mean you know it's even to the like you ever get so panicked about your partner that you got entirely naked on a beach in winter you know like (laughs) all of these places he goes to i think he just knocks it out of the park i think it's a great great performance that he gives as well such a good piece of casting like yes patrick wilson's energy is just well I'm just a nice Mormon, <laughs> but I've got a dark side. <laughs> like, I really just feel like that's his entire energy. I was fascinated in watching both of these, you know, both halves. Like, I think in some ways, Joe is one of the more sympathetic characters in the first half, even though we we see that he's sort of un- unfairly, I don't want to say trapped, but he's like, he's very, he can be cruel to Harper. It was probably unfair of him to marry her, realizing that wasn't going to work out the way she would have wanted. But it's also sympathetic in that he's coming from this really repressive religious society and he's sort of trying to do his best within the moral, you know, the morality he's been given. But I actually think by the end, he's sort of like one of the least sympathetic characters. And it's interesting that the play kind of doesn't, at least this miniseries version, doesn't, doesn't really, it gives him the least resolution of any character, I would say. Like it is, it's almost like at some point it's like, yeah, you probably don't deserve, like you, we got why you were sympathetic at the beginning, but by the end, well, there's only so much sympathy we can give you, so bye. <laughs> and and I we don't that know. was kind of a bold move, too. We don't know where Harper and Joe go by the end. You know, we we know that... Yeah, we Harper's assume... on the plane, and then Joe's kind of... Right. Who knows where. Who knows where. I mean, we know that they, you know, have are gone, but we mm-hmm. don't know where. Um, yeah. And, and it's interesting to see the four of them that you mentioned, you know, Joe, Lewis, Pryor, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Lewis, Pryor, Belize, yeah. and Hannah have made this little Sex in the City right. group yeah. sitting on the fountain. <laughs> and, you know, Roy is dead, and we don't know where Harper and Joe are and the angel's the angel. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're the they're, they're the two characters that don't get much resolution mm-hmm. other than they have to keep going in search of themselves. And we, yeah. we hope and we think that they're equipped with the tools to do it now, that they certainly were not at the beginning. Yeah. So we've also talked about Streep a bit throughout this. She unsurprisingly delivers, I think, as she always does. Yeah, incredible. she's wonderful. Unsurprisingly incredible, again. Yeah, her Hannah in particular. I mean, I, I get her, her Ethel as well, but that Hannah character, the the Joe's mom, the 
the uh, who would she be in the the Charlotte of the <laughs> Sex in the City crew? <laughs> she maybe she's too mean to be a Charlotte. I don't know. She is great as that character though. This like judgmental, but ultimately. She's a judgmental Mormon mom who is then able to evolve in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And she has a huge arc that you meet mm-hmm. her over the phone call in the middle of the night where Joe is coming out to her, basically. And she starts with, you know, exactly where we expect her to be. Like, shut it down. How dare you? Go home to your wife. We're going to pretend like this never happened. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> By the end, she's you... just hanging out with, like, her three gay best friends. <laughs> And she looks great at the end. She looks, she looks happy. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. God, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that she gets a new hairdo after. That's like a funny little touch after her meeting oh, with it's, Pryor. That's one of the best beats ever. So Pryor has followed Joe to meet her at the visitor center for the Mormon church in New York mm-hmm. where she's where she's volunteering. And she's like, like, who who are you? Are you like one of those? homosexuals and Pryor's like how could you tell and like you know like like prompts her with all these questions like you know what like what what do you think I'm like you know a hairdresser or something well it would be your lucky day if I was and Meryl <laughs> looks down to herself and one hand sort of like shoots up to the back of her head to her horrible wig and I'm like oh Meryl you've done it again <laughs> it's incredible it's incredible. Yeah. It doesn't seem to me, I mean, maybe Mary Louise Parker remains like a bit of a question mark, but generally speaking, it's like an extremely solid ensemble. You can see yes. the logic. It is great casting for the time, for the era in which there was essentially like no mainstream agreement that there was anything you couldn't play if you weren't that except like a black person. Everything else was pretty much like fair game in mainstream productions like... It's all acting, okay? It's all, it's all anyone can play anything. Mm-hmm. And we are not there now. And thank goodness. And thank goodness. And hopefully, uh, you know, 18 years from now when people are having conversations, this is always a refrain, hopefully 18 years from now when they have this conversation, they'll be saying, oh, we are not where they were back in 2021. Um, we have moved on. So mm. here's to uh, the future. Because it's a play, you know. This will be produced time and time again, hopefully. Because mm-hmm. it's yeah. a play. And we'll see... Maybe we'll be 20 years from now discussing the way in which it's aged, and hopefully we will be saying only in good ways does it echo with the future. We don't, we aren't, we've, you know, solved all of these other questions, but uh, but we'll see. I think that Andrew Garfield production might be, I think they filmed it and maybe it streamed it somewhere. I was oh. wondering if I could find that and see and watch it as a point of contrast. Nathan Lane's in it too. Yeah, that's mm. who I'm really interested in is Nathan Lane as Roy Cohn. I mean, I didn't recognize yeah. that many of the other the other characters. Um, a, a production that I thought was crazy to read about is the London premiere in which Daniel Craig played Joe, Jason Isaacs played I think Lewis, and Stephen Delane mm-hmm. played Pryor. So that's James Bond, Lucius Malfoy, and Stannis <laughs> Baratheon in that wow. original production. Presumably also all straight, but yeah, there have been many productions and there will be hopefully many more. Will, who would you like to play in this play? Mm, good question. Um, I I think it would be a toss up between Pryor and the Angel. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. I would like to play both of them. I would like to uh, be in an ensemble cast of a six-hour play where we all switch the roles. Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I was watching uh, part of this with my partner, um, Christian, and they were like, I would really love to see your Harper. <laughs> I yeah. Like, I was like, oh, God. I thought about dude, that. Just, yeah. Just me as this kind of like homophobic is the wrong word, but like the most resistant to queerness in the play, mm-hmm. I I think is sometimes Harper. So I was mm. like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. What would my look into being like, all I want is a baby and for yeah. all of these queer people to stop ruining my life. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be interesting. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'd love to play the angel. Yeah. Prior. Yeah. yeah, the angel is, I think, most similar to what you were doing in at least Act Three of uh, Mr. Burns. That was kind 100%. of hundred percent similar vibe. I that would be yeah, your audition like, for that. Oh my god, I'll pull that video. I didn't. I I will admit that I did not fully understand who that character was supposed to be uh, as it was written. I was just like, let me just make a choice, mm-hmm. and I was like, I think I'm a foreboding moon princess, and that seems pretty much the angel to That's, me. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I got from it. Perfect. (laughs) So after Angels in America, to take a look through our Jeffrey Wright lens for a second, after that point, the Wright train is rolling. And for the next, like, you know, years and years, it seems like basically your directors are seeking them out to pad the ensembles. Kind of like that, um, was it 27 percenters, Caroline? 18 percenters? That Joe Cunningham in our first episode was mentioning. He just makes you that much more interesting if he's in the ensemble. So he gives these critically acclaimed performances in like the fifth to eighth build role. In Manchurian Candidate, Broken Flowers, Syriana, Casino Royale, W, Hunger Games, etc. A bunch of films like that. He he does have leads in Cadillac Records, Source Code, The OG. In 2014, he makes his return to HBO as the villainous Dr. Narcisse in Boardwalk Empire. And these projects bring us to 2016, when he comes back to HBO once again and lands the role of Dr. Bernard Lowe in Westworld. A show that, with its combination of cowboys and androids, is honestly insane. I've managed to not see it until now. But I'm starting Westworld, and in two weeks, we're going to have a new episode covering season one of that show. I've got a lot of TV to watch, so we're going to wrap this episode up now. But first, I really want to thank Will. Thank you so much for joining us and bringing your perspective to this. Yeah. Thank you it's for been having a pleasure. me. Oh, Totally. It's been so good to hang out with y'all. Yeah. I've seen you, Ned, recently, but I, Caroline, I haven't seen you or I know. So this long. is a lovely reunion. Yeah. Yes. And and one of the, you know, secret, not secret goals of our podcast, just to, like, hang out with people that we want to hang out with. So 100%. this is a treat. So, Will, for all of our listeners... Where can they find you down if they want more Will Wilhelm? Well, I also host my own podcast. It's called Tea Cakes and Tarot Conversations with Queer Futurists. I co-created that with our friend Aaron Murray. And it's basically me sitting and chatting with some other queer theater artists about the state of our industry, our experiences in it. We talk a lot about contemporary ideations of the classics. And then I give them a tarot reading to give them some perspective on whatever's bouncing around in their brains. So uh, you can find that wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Muscleless and companion to this, I would say. If you were if you were the target audience for a two-hour podcast about angels in America, I think that <laughs> Will has plenty yes. more wonderful things for you. Yes, and like a lot of other amazing uh, guests too. Uh, every episode, uh, there are 10 on online right now. It has a different amazing guest and uh, 
for other of the like acting stuff and writing stuff I'm doing, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at wwilhelm. And you could also follow the Tea Cakes and Tarot Instagram. It's at Tea Cakes and Tarot. Cool. It has been an absolute pleasure, Will. Yeah, thank you so much, Will. Thank you. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wonserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling and email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back next time to conclude our Jeffrey Wright series with Westworld Season 1. Until then... I'm sorry you're psychotic, but pull it together. <laughs> Perfecto. Did I do it right? You did it. You were great. one. You were so on the ball.